Good morning, everyone, and Happy New Year. Welcome to the Week on 3 with me, Noreen Mir. Many thanks to Janice for the past two months for bringing us her delightful choices of highlights. I'd also like to highlight that it's her birthday today, so wishing you a happy birthday, Janice. Happy sweet 21st. Sure. As we're only into day two of the new year, for most of today's program, we'll be looking back at the last week of 2020 on Radio 3. And what a week it's been. Today, I've chosen a few international superstars to spotlight, including award-winning singer-songwriter Nell Bryden, all the way from New York City, and also Canadian musician J.P. Sachs. Throughout the entire week on The Common Room, Alison Howe spoke to Jonathan Percy Sachs, best known as J.P. Sachs. Now he is a Canadian musician and also a singer-songwriter. And despite of being famous, he shares what it's like to see himself on TV. I mean, I'm not used to seeing myself on TV yet. It's still, it's like when they, when Terry Crews announced, we have some, we have some, it sounds weird to even say, like we have some musical superstars here to perform the artist. I was like that. They, that cannot include me. There's no way that Terry Crews is talking about me. They must have cut my part. We got replaced. Someone else is going up there for sure. <laughs> Are you pleased about the performance? How was that collaboration for you? No, I'm so happy with it. Um, you know, getting to sing with the, the two girls, um, Kennedy and Roberta, with the two contestants, I thought they were both amazing. I think they're both going to have incredible careers. Uh, I mean, I certainly, when I was... 11 and 15 i had no idea what i was doing with myself so i'm so impressed that, that they're able to like be so composed and perform so emotively you know i got to do with julia anything i get to do with julia makes me happy so it, it was really, really a fun experience that's awesome we'll come to your friendship with julia in a minute but first you mentioned that you know you were collaborating 15 years old and we have a lot of 15 year olds tuning in what were you like as a teenager? What was I like at 15? I had a lot of acne. I was very awkward <laughs> and I was exceptionally insecure. So basically the same, just without the acne and being, well, I'm slightly insecure, very awkward. Um, so yeah, not much has changed. I just, I get to be myself in front of more people now. Right. Were you always musically talented? Uh, I mean, I started playing the piano when I was quite young. Uh, my grandfather was a classical cellist, so that was very much the backdrop of my my musical world as a kid. Uh, and, you know, I got into singing when I was young, too. And I think it was the first place I ever built, uh, like, a relationship with myself, was, was making music and writing songs. It was the first place the, the idea of having a relationship with myself ever even had made sense to me. As an only child playing piano on the middle of the night as well. Wow. It must be quite exciting to grow up in kind of like a musical family. Uh, it was exciting. Honestly, I'm, I'm grateful to have had a grandfather who made the idea of building a life and a career in music not seem totally absurd. <laughs> Is it difficult to transition from classical to whatever you feel like to create? Uh, I mean, I never played classical music. It was. It was first jazz for me, and then I fell in love with poetry and writing. And, you know, how conversational could I be in a song was, was an exciting question for me. You know, how, how much could I make these songs feel like the way I write in my journals or the way I talk to my best friend? Because I felt like if I could really make these songs connect to what it feels like to be in my own head or to be in a conversation with someone I love, then that was the thing that was going to make them connect to the people around the world. And 
the songs could connect for people around the world than I could then connect to people around the world and you know just want to feel a little less alone out here I was distracted and in traffic I didn't feel it when the earthquake happened but it really got me thinking were you out drinking were you in the living room chilling watching television it's been a year now I think I figured out how how to let you go and let communication die out I know you know we know you are down for forever and it's fine I know you know we know we If the world was ending, you would come over, right? Right. I tried to imagine your reaction. It didn't scare me when the earthquake happened, but it really got me thinking. The night we went drinking, stumbled in the house and didn't make it past the kitchen. Oh, it's been a year now. Think I figured out how, how to think about you without it ripping my heart out. And I know you know we know you are down for forever and it's fine. I know you know we know we were meant for each other and it's fine. But if the world was ending, you come over, right? You come over and you say the night. Would you love me for the hell of it? All our fears would be irrelevant. If the world was ending, you come over, right? Sky be falling while I hold you tight No, there wouldn't be a reason why We would even have to say goodbye If the world was ending, you come over right You come over right You come over, you come over, you come over right mm-hmm. I know, you know, we know You went down for forever and it's fine I know, you know, we know We weren't meant for each other and it's fine But if the world was ending, you'd come over, right? You'd come over and you'd say tonight Would you love me for the hell of it? All our fears would be irrelevant If the world was ending, you'd come over, right? It's can't be falling while I hold you tight No, there wouldn't be a reason why And that was JP Sachs on Monday's Common Room. Right, let's turn to something that's been on my mind for the last few weeks, and that is because of the fourth wave of the coronavirus, many expected mothers will need to give birth on their own due to a controversial restriction in our public hospitals where birth partners, well, usually the father, will now not be able to be present for the birth of their child. 
Now this will no doubt bring another level of anxiety for some. And so I wanted to dedicate a topic on my program, The 123 Show, for expected mothers. On Tuesday's program, we talked about the calm birth method and also hypnobirthing, where mothers and partners can use techniques like breathwork and visualizations to help with a smoother and calmer birth. I spoke to hypnotist Christine Deschaman and also Lindsay Parfit, a calm birth instructor, about techniques that can help. It's got to be the breath. And I'm sure Christine will probably agree with me. or Well, maybe not. I'm interested to hear what she says. But for me, the breath is my favorite, favorite thing because... If you can learn some good breath techniques, even if you could just remember one, if you forgot all the others and you just remembered one breathing technique, then you can take that with you no matter what happens in your birth story. So even those who do have an emergency cesarean, for example, still tell me, I used my breath to calm my body. And that has really good, you know, you're slowing down the nervous system essentially. So the biggest quick tip I can give you is try to make your exhale longer and softer and slower than your inhale. And just by doing that, just by simply doing a nice slow exhale, that's one quick tip for calming the body down a little bit. That's, yes, that's an excellent tip. That's exactly what the midwife from Queen Mary said. She said, imagine you're blowing out a birthday candle. And she just kept saying, you know, blow it out. So it was like, yeah. So I've got a mask. I don't know if our listeners can hear me. Um, something like that. Okay, so breath, uh, breathing is most important for you, Lindsay. And what about for you, uh, Christine? What, what's one technique you can give our listeners? Yeah, breath is a good one. Let me give you another one, So, which will be, um, I think, as effective if you practice it quite a bit. Um, pay attention to one sense, just one sense. Maybe the touch, for instance. Could be two fingers next to each other or the tip of the tongue and really pay attention to all the sensation in that very small space. And that saturates the senses. So you can't basically go and think about those crazy thoughts about being afraid or whatever. If you do that on a regular basis, that's a kind of self-hypnosis. You focus on one thing. Um, So in, in a particular sense, you know, you focus on the sense of touch. When you breathe, you focus on the sense of, it's actually many things, sense of touch and at the same time, the, the, the sound of the breath, the temperature. So it has a lot of senses into it. That's why I think people like to go to it all the time. And that's very useful. That's one, you know, you could do as well. Yes. Well, and you well, can do that without people knowing about it. You're just sitting at your desk in the <laughs> office and something really annoys you. You're really getting, and when I say that, I mean, it's not about only fear, it's about even anger. Something is really getting on your nerves. And so instead of uh, doing something which is going to be uh, badly, uh, you know, not acceptable, why don't you just sit there and then focus just on focus one on sense or the tip of your tongue and that's it. And that was Tuesday's 123 show. I'd like to wish all expectant mothers a smooth and safe delivery of your baby. And most of all, trust your body, which has done such a fab job of carrying the baby. Your body knows exactly what to do next. So just trust it. So moving on to Wednesday's back chat, where they talked about the old Chekhip May Reservoir, which is suddenly at the center of a major conservation debate. As recent demolition work begun by the Water Supplies Department, they have found the arched structure with a Roman-style appearance, which has been covered up for decades. 
I focused on the second half of the discussion where hosts Hugh Chiverton and Anna Fenton spoke to Calvin Ho, the Shamshuipo district councillor, who brought this controversy into the spotlight. But first, Fredo Cheng, an architectural conservationist and also assistant lecturer from the Faculty of Architecture from the University of Hong Kong, talks about the various remaining reservoirs we have in Hong Kong that may be also similar to the one in Chek Kip May. There are actually lots of service reservoirs, such as this one, you know, around Hong Kong. I mean, this is how water is supplied. If you actually really deal into the terms of, you know, what constitutes a service reservoir, as these type of reservoirs were called, the purpose of this was actually to retain filtered water from the reservoir itself and then to be kept in these underground tanks so that they will not be contaminated before they're actually supplied to the general population. <coughs> And um, most of these uh, service reservoirs which are undercovered are usually, um, well, they're disguised in the top as open areas or playgrounds. So there are actually quite a lot of these actually hidden around Hong Kong in the hillsides. So where else but, are there any? Because you know above the Queen Mary Hospital in Pok Fulam, if you walk up that way by the riding school, there's a big flat area there that's just always called the water, the water tank area. Is that another one there? Yes, that's another one. So oh. I could think of another one also at the uh, well on the HKU campus. Well, one of the one of the water tanks of, or actually the service reservoirs in the HKU campus has been demolished, so to make way for the new Centennial Campus development. What makes this rare is that it's seldom that one of these decommissioned tanks become visible. The only other example I can actually think of about the decommissioned um, service reservoir. <laughs> coming into, um, well, at least um, the public knowledge and then become highly visible is um, an example in Sydney, Australia, you know, the Paddington Reservoir. The Paddington Reservoir in Australia actually bears remarkable similarities to what we see in, uh, well, at Shepkit May on top of um, the Wachai Shan. What the Sydney government did was that, um, well, in 1999, they actually declared it as a heritage site. And then it underwent adaptive reuse and was transformed into an urban space, a park. And now it's actually a, well, a landmark. And then it's a highly treasured asset in Sydney. And then it actually does wonders, you know, in promoting cultural tourism. Let's maybe bring in now Calvin Ho, Shamshui Po District Councillor. Mr Ho, good morning to you. What, what was the story here? What did what actually happened? How far had the demolition gone, and who who blew the whistle? I think there are many problems and negligence during the consultation process. First of all, in the original document of the uh, water supply department, it is clearly stated that is a surface reservoir. Even on the map of the lands department, it is also clearly stated uh, surface reservoir. But the WSD changed the word to water tank in the con uh, during the consultation period. Even giving the document to the district council, they use water tank. Why they changed the word? That's the first thing. Second one, to the AMO uh, to AMO staff. Uh, the WSD used water tan in the email and letter and informed the AMO whether they should uh, demolish this water tank. And the AMO just uh, saw the letter 
oh, water tank, then it's okay, go ahead. But do, but should they have a query? Such a more than 100 years old water tank is going to be taken down. Should they do some research or have some site visit before demo, uh, demol demolishing it? They did nothing. That's the second negligence. And the third one is, in the district council, the WSD didn't provide any information about the uh, what inside the reservoir. Is there any historical uh, heritage, or do they have any communication with the AMO? No, they just said, oh, there is uh, some structural problem, and it will cause some uh, potential dangers. That's why we have to uh, fix it, and to and the method to fix it is to fill the whole reservoir with the soil surrounding. So if the, if the resident didn't unveil this uh, problem or we didn't uh, make it to the public, the whole reservoir will be buried. So th these are the problems between different departments. Why was it being demolished in the first place? Oh, because the WSD said uh, this reservoir has uh, has been standing idle for many years and because it is empty inside and the tree on on the water uh, on the reservoir the root become penetrate mm -hmm. into the reservoir and that's why it becomes some structural problems and they are afraid that they, uh, the whole uh, reservoir will be collapsed so they have to uh, do some repairment and the method to repair it is to fill the whole reservoir with the soil. I see. So they were making it safe. That was the yeah. That was the idea. Okay. And and was it just residents who who noticed that the, there were these um, beautiful brick columns then, or what happened? Oh, when the uh, project start to be, uh, start to dig, the resident nearby discover. Uh, they, they can have a chance to look inside the reservoir. So they discover, oh, it is a beautiful place, many historical things inside, such as the Ark, the Roman-style Ark, or some old pile with the number 1909 and 1932. And, and then the resident found it, is, it may be a heritage, so they want to keep it, to conserve it. So they call us. And we call uh, we call to the public, so uh, we and also call to stop the project. Mm. So if we look towards the future, Mr. Ho, you yeah. know, in in London we have um, Charing Crosses, a familiar area to many people, where they have turned these um, not like not exactly like this, but the old arches have become uh -huh. night nightclubs and um, social facilities. Surely this would be a, a marvelous place to become. Uh, well, for film sets or for um, yeah. gathering, entertainment, there, there, surely there's unlimited potential for something as beautiful and remarkable as this. Sure, you're right. Many people go outside to, for, to travel is to want to see such heritage. And now you don't need to go to other places. You can stay in Hong Kong and have a side visit about that.
Yeah, Frido Chang, what would you like to do with this site? Uh, I think you mentioned uh, the the Paddington uh, Reservoir Gardens uh, in uh, Sydney, and, and Guy has sent us a very interesting uh, website with a lot of uh, pictures of that uh, site. That's kind of been made into an urban park with kind of modern architecture slotted in uh, around it among the sort of Victorian uh, water infrastructure, which gives a, a, a nice effect. Would you, you know, what would you like to see Frido Chung done with that, or do you think it's, we should be up to the local residents, or what? I think um, really we should actually um, engage the local residents because this has been the site which is frequented by the local residents. Um, they have um, an attachment, and they are the general and stakeholders um, of this site because I mean they have been using this facility for the longest time. So I mean it's. We really should, and well, there should be a genuine public engagement exercise, you know, when it comes to um, thinking about the most suitable adaptive reuse scenario. I mean, it has been used as a recreational space, so in my opinion, which is why I actually pointed towards the, uh, the Paddington Reservoir mm. example, because I think it's actually a very, very ingenious way to actually make use of that sunken space and turning it into a sunken park. And in any way, because the um, architecture itself is actually quite remarkable. I mean, the archways, you know, it's simply sublime. And it will become a very distinguishing feature, which, is, which can actually draw, you know, not just local residents, you know, from around the city, but also, you know, it becomes a very important heritage asset, which can be used to tap into cultural tourism. And that was Wednesday's Back Chat. And now I'd like to end the program with Morning Brew, where James Ross has been looking after the show for the past couple of weeks, while Phil Whelan is somewhere in the Amazonian jungle trying to develop the COVID-19 vaccine. And that's almost the end of the program. I'd like to wish you all a very happy new year, happy 2021. And let's end with Monday's Morning Brew, where James Ross spoke to Nell Bryden all the way from New York about some of her own favorite songs. In terms of the songs that you've written, I mean, so many of the songs that you've written, and some, some of them indeed have been uh, picked up and covered by major artists like Cher. I think she covered Sirens, and uh, yeah. and, and many other artists have, uh, have, have uh, sung your songs as well. Uh, of your songs, what, what are your favourite songs? Tell, tell us oh. which ones would you, you know, the ones that you particularly like. Well, the one you're talking about, Cher covered uh, a song called Sirens, mm. and that is a big song for me because it was, because um, as you said, I you know from New York, and um, I was he in Greenwich Village in my place that I lived in for 15 years down in the West Village on 9/11, and so that was a day that really affected me and really kind of seeped into my psyche and my consciousness and the way that I look at the world. But it took me a long time before I wanted to write about it because it was one of those days that it felt like, the, you know, the magnitude of the tragedy was so hard to put into words that it just, like, it felt like a, a song was kind of almost letting it down because you couldn't put it into words. So it took me 10 years before I was even willing to, to consider it. And then I was sitting around one afternoon with a guy in Surrey in England, and this song, Sirens, just came tumbling out because I was telling him about the day and about walking down 7th Avenue and seeing the cutaway of the, of the jet plane and the side of the buildings and the sound of the of the plane flying overhead it all just came tumbling out into this song and the song i think um sirens is something that really shows the hope that happened that day as well because of course we hear about what a horrible experience it was it was terrifying but also i think new york which is this giant cosmopolitan city became like a little village and people sort of 
you know, looked at each we looked at each other differently that day. Like neighbors really became more like your family members, and you would sort of see total strangers and ask how they were doing. It was it was completely foreign to the New York experience, and I think that that sense of just being this tiny little village where everybody had to kind of band together to get through it made a big impression on me, and I wanted to get that across in that song. So I wrote that song, and then Cher heard it, and she covered it and put it on her album, and a couple other artists heard it and invited me on tour. And So the song really changed my life. And um, so that's something that was really quite close to me. And then this last year, of course, with the pandemic happening, I got a call from uh, Ken Bruce on Radio 2 in the UK, and he asked me to play that for his house music sessions. And so I got to play remotely with the BBC Concert Orchestra, and it was this feat of you know wow. technology. And I'm not I'm not very good with technology, so I was so, <laughs> so impressed they were, that it they got were in London. The, the- they were all separately in their own homes. They were in <laughs> London, but like in. So it's an orchestra, you know, you can see when I saw the video of it all afterwards, like the the visual, because I was so focused on getting, you know, on just not messing up myself and getting the emotion across that I didn't pay attention to what was going on. I saw the the, uh, the visual of it afterwards, and I was really quite moved because here were all these people in in their various homes playing remotely, but playing collectively. And it was sort of metaphorical for, you know, what what we're trying to do these days, both with music and sort of with community in general online is trying to still connect somehow and still feel that that connection. And I think that that song Sirens really was appropriate lyrically for, you know, how to still have that sense of of banding together in a real traumatic time. I drowned, I was floating with you, the river so deep and the sky perfect blue, if we leave behind the darkness outside. From the sound of stars, city will rise. Hold your hand in mine. Swim against the tide. From the sound of sirens, love will survive. Hey! 
Sirens with the BBC Concert Orchestra. 